Well, the last time that I stood behind this pulpit and preached uh, in this congregation was two weeks ago, and the title of my message was Christ is Our Peace. And as I have continued to reflect on that truth, I have felt friction between this peace in Christ and the hostility that is so often found in this world. And I trust that many of you have probably felt that same tension. The events of Friday, December 14, 2012 in Connecticut are one very apparent example. Disunity, hostility, selfishness, and pride plague men and women today, and it certainly doesn't appear to be going away. But I believe that Selfishness and greed and pride are not only found in these large-scale tragedies that all too often happen today, but I believe they are even found in the very commonplace and ordinary events and practices of the Christmas season. In a time of year when peace and love and hope and joy should be most apparent, Highway 280 is a madhouse filled with mad drivers. And the summit is a battleground for finding the next best deal before someone else beats us to it. This is one shock of Christmas. However, this is a time of year when we can express our love and our care for one another by giving gifts to those that we love. And we say and we even teach our children that it is much better to give than to receive, yet we proceed to shower them with numerous and expensive gifts and think that they're going to somehow grow up understanding that message. This is another shock of Christmas. And a third shock of Christmas usually is not felt until well after Christmas, even after New Year's, sometime in January, when credit card bills and bank statements find their way into our email inboxes or perhaps our mailboxes, and we realize how much we have actually spent on the holiday celebration. But there is one shock of Christmas that far exceeds any of these and any other discrepancies between what we proclaim to be true about Christmas and what we actually practice during Christmas. And that shock comes in the genesis of Christmas. The events and the reality of what actually took place at the first Christmas. My hope this morning is that we will see from God's word that Jesus is the greatest expression of love ever. Jesus is the greatest expression of love ever. Our primary passage this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So I would encourage you to take your Bibles and to turn to the New Testament book of Philippians. Remember, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians uh, is a short letter about two-thirds the way through the New Testament. 
And this particular passage was written out of the context of disunity among believers in Jesus Christ. Disunity in the church. And so Paul writes to the church at Philippi to address that disunity. And ultimately to look at the supreme example of humility and love displayed by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So look with me now at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. This is what God's Word reads. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we once again come before you this morning acknowledging that this time is about you, that today we celebrate your birth among us. Lord, may that that love as displayed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ be front and center during the next few minutes. May you alone receive glory. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So this particular passage, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he's targeting a lapse in unity. Now, disunity is ultimately the result of pride. It's the natural result of pride. And so Paul writes to the church, to Christians there, and by nature of Scripture to us this morning, to encourage us, to admonish us, to humbly consider others better than ourselves. To think of ourselves less often and to think of others more. And that brings them to the greatest example of humility and love ever displayed throughout history. And that's the birth of God in the flesh. Now back up with me for just a couple verses to verses 3 and 4. And there he wrote, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so basically what we read here and the message that we get is is don't be conceited, don't be selfish, don't be uh, all about yourself, but instead consider others better than yourself. And then he proceeds to tell us to look at Christ, look at the example of Christ, the supreme example of humility and love, the supreme example of looking out for the interest of others. And it's in the incarnation, the Son of God coming to us in the form of a man and the crucifixion, the Son of God's death for us, that we see the ultimate example of love. And this is where this intersects directly with what we celebrate at Christmas. Look at verse 5. We're told that our attitude or our mind should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. 
We're to think and to act in the way that God has acted in Christ Jesus. And then verses 6 through 11 uh, begin to explain what that looks like. They deal directly with the incarnation and the crucifixion of Christ, this example. So uh, think like Christ, and let me tell you about the way that Christ thought and the way that he thinks as displayed by his actions. This is, this is the line of thinking for Paul here. And verse 6 begins, verses 6 through 11, what many have uh, labeled or believed to be a hymn. And that's why in many translations, verses 6 through 11 are, are, are kind of... Uh, written differently. They're indented differently to reflect uh, that likely reality. And so verse 6, we read that, that Jesus, remember our attitude should be the same as Jesus, and so Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus is God. He is in very nature God. Another way of translating this is that Jesus, who is in the form of God. Jesus is God. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Describing the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one whose birth we celebrate during this time of year. Hebrews 1, 3 reads, The Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The baby boy that we celebrate being born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem was not the beginning of a new God. Nor was the baby boy the beginning of God or the Son of God the second person of the Trinity. But it did mark a new era, a new era in which God began the fulfillment of his plans and his purposes by coming to us, humbling himself and being born as a child in lowly circumstances, the creator becoming a lowly creature, the son of God taking on human form. And it says in verse 6 that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he didn't latch on to the rights and the privileges that were rightly his as the King of kings and Lord of lords to be used for his own advantage, to be used for his own benefit. But instead, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Nothing. Now, there's been a lot of debate over what that phrase means, but it does not mean that when God took on human form, that the Son of God somehow got rid of his deity, the attributes that make him divine. It doesn't mean that. What it really means, and what's being communicated here, is that he became a nobody, that he made himself of no reputation among people. Now, there is no illustration or analogy that can rightly convey what took place when God took on human flesh. It just can't be done. But I'm going I'm to give you one anyway. Many of you have probably seen uh, the popular CBS television show called Undercover Boss. Undercover Boss. And in that show... CEOs and company executives 
go undercover as entry-level employers in their own businesses. And they do this for a number of reasons. They do it, number one, because they want to determine how to better their own businesses, and they do it because they want to see what takes place on the day-to-day level within their own company, and they want to also reward those uh, whom are performing their tasks, performing their jobs well. And so they go undercover, and they, they act as if uh, they are new to the company, as if they are uh, a new hire, and they're learning the ropes. They're learning what it means to be an hourly employee rather than a CEO of a big business. Now, as simple as that task sounds, if you see the show, you see that, that they often have a hard time really doing this well, that so many of these executives don't live up to the task assigned to them. They fall short. They see the reality of what takes place behind the scenes day to day, the the hard work that goes into their companies. But in all these scenarios, even though they have taken on a new identity, they don't cease to be the company executive. The boss is still the boss. And the same thing is true of God. The Son of God, when he took on human flesh, did not cease to be God. But he made himself nothing by filling himself up with a new identity, something that he formerly was not, taking on human flesh. The baby that we celebrate in the manger is God in the flesh. Listen to this description of the Son of God as found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Scripture reads this way. He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is how we know that this is not the beginning of the second person of the Trinity. This is not the beginning of the Son of God. The Son of God has existed with God the Father and God the Spirit from eternity past, and the Son is responsible for creating us. Take a moment and look around. Look at the faces in this room. Some of you are doing that. Others, that's a little uncomfortable for. But, but you know, you know there are a lot of people in this room this morning. The same one that fashioned together each and every one of us in our mother's womb is the one that became one of us. God became man And was born in the most humble circumstances, wrapped in a cloth, born to a virgin, and laid in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn, as we heard read just a few minutes ago. And then we read that he took on the very nature of a servant, that he was made in human likeness. He took on the nature of a servant. Notice the parallel 
parallelism here. He says in verse 6, he was in very nature God. He became very nature a servant. He was in the form of God. He took on the form of a servant. He emptied himself. That's what's being said here. He emptied himself of his rights and his privileges, and he became a nobody. He became one of us. The creator God became a creature. And I hope you see, don't miss this, I hope you see the incredible irony here. You know, most of us are so accustomed to hearing this story and hearing these truths that, uh, that we hear them again and, and we almost pay no attention to them. But this does not normally happen. You know this, right? Kings do not willingly and humbly become servants, become slaves. Company CEOs do not give up their posh homes and lucrative salaries in order to become floor workers paid by the hour. This doesn't happen. Even in our TV show, Undercover Boss, these bosses and these executives have ulterior motives. We understand that, right? They want to better their own businesses. They want to reward those that are working hard. They want fame, publicity, and they also receive whatever sort of compensation from participating in the success of a hit television series. We don't operate this way. Humans do not naturally consider others better than themselves as we're uh, commanded to do here in Philippians chapter 2. But the good news for us and for all humanity is that God, the only God, The King of kings and Lord of lords does operate this way. It's not natural to us, but it is natural to him. We serve a God who is compassionate and forgiving and merciful and loving, who puts others before himself, who's repeatedly described in Scripture as being gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A God who plans and purposes to come to us to offer forgiveness and salvation for us by dying on a cross for us, by doing for us what we could not do for ourselves only, only because he loves us. God didn't wake up one day and decide, you know, I kind of have a passive personality. I don't like sitting on the throne. I don't like being the king of kings and lord of lords. So I think I'll become one of them. No, that did not drive him. It was his love and his desire to be known for us, his desire to save us, his desire to spend eternity with us that propelled him to come to us and to live among us. The incarnation God coming to us in the form of a baby is the greatest shock of Christmas. And as if that shock isn't enough, as if that isn't incredible and shocking enough, look at verse 8. It says, In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It says that he was found in appearance as a man. This doesn't mean that he appeared like a man but wasn't really a man. What's being communicated here is that he appeared as an ordinary man. He didn't even appear as a special man. 
He just fit in with the crowd. But it was God in the flesh. And he humbled himself even further, even beyond just becoming one of us. And he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. The cross was a shameful and excruciating way to die, reserved for the worst of criminals, for robbers, for anarchists, for rebels. A Roman citizen could not even be crucified without the express sanction of the emperor. And the reason that I mention the cross this morning, besides the very obvious fact that this passage mentions the cross, is because God came to us in the flesh. The Son of God was born among us so that he might die for us. All the while knowing, all the while desiring that to be the fulfillment of God's plan so that you and so that I and so that the rest of the world might have opportunity to be saved in him. The nativity happened so that Calvary would happen. And if we miss that, we miss Christmas, we miss the gravity of what God is doing by coming to us in the flesh. The greatest expression of love ever is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greatest expression of love ever. The Son of God died. A torturous, humiliating, painful death on a cross. But he did not stay dead. He was raised from the dead and taken back to his rightful place at the right hand of his Father in heaven. And before we conclude this morning, I want to say just a few brief remarks about verses 9 through 11. We spent a disproportionate amount of time on verses 5 through 8, but that's intentional because we're celebrating God coming to us in the flesh. Look back at verse 9. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will eventually acknowledge that Jesus, the one that was laid in a feeding trough, is Lord and King. When this says in verse 10 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, it's not saying that that's the right thing to do. It's saying that this will come to pass. This will take place. And some will profess him as Lord and as King and as Savior now, today, in this world and receive eternal life. But others will only do so in shame and terror at his return. Nevertheless, The message of the gospel, the message of Christmas, the Christian message is for all people. Which is why the angel appeared to the shepherds, Jews, and to the magi in the east, Gentiles, declaring that that God has come in the flesh and he desires for all people to worship him and to know him and to experience life in him. 
So my question for you this morning is, will you worship Jesus Christ as Lord this Christmas? Will you worship Jesus as Lord this Christmas? I'm not asking if you know the Christmas story. I'm not asking if you can even state the Christmas story. I'm not asking if you will attend a candlelight service on Christmas Eve. And I'm not even asking if you will read Matthew or Luke's account on Christmas morning. Those are good things. Those are important things. But nothing compares to knowing the magnitude of God's love for us as displayed in his incarnation and crucifixion for us. And we miss the Christian story. We miss Christmas if we don't recognize that and respond to it. Friends, we cannot play games with the Christmas story. We cannot treat Christmas as God intended it to simply be an afterthought or an additional thought among everything else we do during this holiday season. Because if this story is true, that we find in these pages, and I believe that it is with all my heart, if it is true, it changes everything. The shock of Christmas shocks our lives when we recognize it. Hear these words from 1 John chapter 4, talking about the love of God as displayed in coming to us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus Christ is the greatest expression of love ever. And if we believe that, then the worst thing we can do is act like that's no big deal. No big deal at Christmas, no big deal in our lives. If this story is true, it changes our lives. Love came down at Christmas. Do you know that love? In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a hymn of response to the truths of God's word. And I would urge you to be obedient to God's leadership in your life. And whatever that looks like, responding to that truth, responding to the love of God as displayed through his word in the message of Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for this Sunday morning to gather with your people, to sing praises to you, to look at your word. Lord, this Sunday before Christmas, to be reminded of the Christmas story, to celebrate the Christmas story, Lord, and hopefully to be eternally impacted by the truths of the Christmas story. Lord, we thank you today for your incredible love as displayed in you coming to us, humbling yourself, becoming one of us, becoming a servant, and even dying on our behalf. 
Father God, I ask that your spirit would not let one of us miss that truth today. Help us to respond obediently to the love that you have shown us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.